0: to the cycling podcast my name is abby mickey we are here to discuss the vuelta a españa the sarah challenge by la vuelta and some other stuff that happened since we last made a podcast a week ago controversy i'm controversy lots of it um i'm joined by ronan mclaughlin hello
1: (laughs) I was waiting for something better than hello there. I, was, I thought you were going to... Kaylee normally does this like, thing where he says something, and then I'm I do this Kayleigh. thing where I say something back, and yeah. <laughs> you didn't say anything, so I couldn't say anything back. Uh,
0: I mean, I left the door open for you to say whatever you wanted <laughs> to say. You could have said anything.
1: Oh, well. Yeah, better I don't say anything. Better we keep it strictly cycling focused here.
0: <laughs> Fair. Kit. Hello. Hello. <laughs> See, Kit knows. I, all I had to say was her name. and then And Kaylee. Who will take over hosting duties halfway through the podcast.
2: Yes, I am here. I am ready. Uh, I'm just not ready to host yet.
0: That's fair. It's fine. I've been awake for a full day uh, at this point. So
2: I have not getting into my coffee here with my sportif du dimanche mug that I bought in a petrol station in France. You know, (laughs) you didn't want that information.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I really like the Dong Patrol mugs.
2: Ah, yes. The Dong Patrol mugs. Uh, My favorite thing about that mug is that it is currently floating around the quite sort of buttoned up Wall Street Journal Paris office. Uh, It's sitting on Josh's desk. (laughs) I
1: I can't hear the words patrol without thinking Paw Patrol. Oh, I'm not there yet. Thankfully, (laughs) you'll get there.
0: Tom's was really, really excited that there was an article about him in the Wall Street Journal on the Wall Street Journal website during the Tour de France. It was about his bottles, him carrying the bottles, and and it was Josh, Joshua,
2: friend of the podcast,
0: friend of the podcast. I mean, that's you
2: know, the, 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 there might be a connection there between Josh's yeah. chosen storyline and
0: no, being no, a friend no, of the no, podcast. No, don't tell Tom's that he was, don't, don't ruin that for him. Come on. Okay. Let's talk about, let's talk about the Volta. Since we last recorded a podcast, we chose a very inopportune time to record a podcast last week about 50 kilometers to go in the stage. And we thought all of us were sitting there thinking, oh, well, nothing really exciting is going to happen today. That is not how it went down. So let's start with the Roglic the roguelich crash and ensuing drama. Who wants to talk about the crash?
1: We have a we have a Twitter person here who has already explained it, so maybe we should let him
2: delve into this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> my accidental meme. My accidental viral meme. Uh, yes, okay. Somebody should just explain what happened. I'm sure that most of our listeners out there are aware of, of what went down here, but basically... Well, was Are you talking about the crash or your tweet? No, no. We're going to get to my tweet later. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, what was the final climb? About three kilometers, two and a half kilometers, something like that. And Primoz Roglic is like, I want the red jersey. I'm going to go for it. And he went for it. And he, he sort of pulled a bit of a gap out. Some other riders came across. Um, and then around 60 or so meters, 80 meters or something like that from the finish line. Ruglitch kind of swings back into this group. Uh, So swings off the front and back into this group and comes in contact with Fred Wright, who was sort of up against the barriers and accelerating. Uh, And basically it sounds like Rugglish didn't really know he was there. And Fred Wright was up against the barriers and accelerating and their handlebars touched. And anybody who has ever uh, touched handlebars in an aggressive way, with somebody else, knows that that doesn't tend to end particularly well. Uh, it's, a, it's a really quick way to hit the deck, particularly when the back of your handlebar gets pushed forward, which looks like w- what probably happened to Ruglich. So anyway, Ruglich went down very hard and uh, was out of the race within, what, 24 hours or so? Um, meanwhile, well back, Remco Venepol had a flat... That didn't really look like a flat.
0: No, wait. Let's get into that controversy in a minute because I think we should uh, uh, we should go one one controversy at a time can, because the I just want the crash.
2: I want to I want to just skip over this that controversy though. I want to like literally mention it right now and then move on because I don't think it's controversial okay, okay. anyway. So Remco Van had a I'm going to do some air quotes here in this on this auditory podcast a flat uh, which then set off the internet in. Mm, sort of grassy knoll-esque conspiracy theories saying that he didn't actually have a flat and he was just pretending to have a flat because he was actually just getting dropped by Ruglitch and he was going to lose a bunch of time. And if the three kilometer rule had not been in place, which it was, then he would have lost, I don't know, two or three minutes, something like that. He basically would have lost the red jersey. And in fact, briefly on the screens that we were watching on the television, he did lose the red jersey. Now, to sort of clear up this controversy, a couple things. One, he's running tubeless, uh, and so most likely he had sort of a, a slow leak uh, or a leak that was sealed completely. It, that's entirely possible as well. Uh, tubeless with sealant inside, you know, he could go from 80 PSI or whatever he's running, 75 PSI, down to 35 uh, pretty quickly, and then maybe the sealant did its job and stopped the leak. Now, 35 PSI is not going to look totally flat, obviously, uh, but it is enough to be pretty sketchy when you're riding like you don't really want to ride around on 35 PSI and a tiny tire like that for very long, particularly with hard corners and all the rest of the things that are happening. So it probably felt a bit weird. So he had a flat. Uh, it was apparently actually confirmed by the commissaires, which is something that happens, which was a was a new bit of information to me. That when a three-kilometer rule incident happens, the commissaries actually come up and sometimes, like, will check the bike, uh, which is interesting. So, yeah, apparently they checked the bike. Somebody squeezed the tire, and it was actually flat. Now, the only small bit of controversy that I guess you could, in theory, continue to push was that perhaps he had the flat well before the 3K mark. Uh, And then because it was tubeless, he just rode it in. And then when he got to the big hill where he didn't really feel like chasing Primoz Roglic, he just stuck his hand up and was like, now is the good time to actually tell people about this flat. That is sort of the only bit of conspiracy I think you can... Semi-reasonably put forth, and even that—is that a
1: conspiracy or is that just a good idea?
2: I I was going to say that's
0: just a good idea. That's
2: (laughs) even that is just sort of yep. That's that probably happens all the
0: time. Actually, that
1: that does no. (laughs) That's not probably that does happen all the time. Like I've seen guys like actually crash over the three kilometer or under the three-kilometer banner to be inside the three-kilometers. If you're going to crash, <laughs> you keep rolling. You keep going until you're inside the 3K to go. And then you stick your hand up.
2: Yeah, so, you know, I think that that's a reasonable assumption. It's not even, I guess it's not even really against the rules. I don't know. The rules are, are, are as the UCI rules often are, quite vague. But regardless, the Remco situation was a non-situation. Wouldn't it have been nice if we could have talked about this right afterward?
1: uh when we made the podcast. No. Uh the alternative conspiracy theory is that his electric motor got stuck in neutral uh and he couldn't. So that was that was the other part of the conspiracy there. <sighs> I'm not I'm not even
2: I'm not even no, we're no we're pivoting. Uh anyway, so <laughs> the
0: This is why I wanted to stick with one controversy <laughs> at a time.
2: Well that, that controversy is now behind us. Okay. And now we have this new controversy, which is Uh, Primoz Roglic blaming, blaming Fred Wright for having the audacity to continue sprinting while in a sprint in the line that he was already in. Okay,
0: this seat... (laughs) (laughs) like a a very biased way to put it. Um, Yeah, because that's that's what happened. That's what happened. Yeah, okay. So so there was (laughs) Roglic crash. He hit the ground really hard. Uh, He looked just absolutely devastated when he was sitting on the ground afterwards. Very sad for him. And then it was announced the morning of the next stage that he would not be starting. And as second on GC with some mountain days coming up, Vanapool looked like he was cracking a little bit the weekend before. So there was a lot of things coming into this him not racing that, you know, he's obviously super disappointed. The guy has the worst luck, or potentially just needs to take a class about bike handling. And uh and so of course, emotions run high. What doesn't really make sense in this situation is a couple of days later. Roglic and Yumbo Visma released a PR statement that was basically, yes, Roglic blaming Fred Wright for the crash. And as it was pointed out on Twitter by somebody smarter than me, the, they didn't say anything on, at the stage. They didn't like talk to the commissaries or try to get Fred Wright relegated or anything after the stage. They just basically put it to the internet. Um, and and yeah that that this this has been twitter all week
2: so 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 uh this statement that came out um was very weird it was extremely weird it was marked as a long read on their website uh and it was like a feature story it was like it wasn't it wasn't like a normal simple to the point press statement it was sort of this weird story about safety and cycling and how this was an example of not safety and cycling and bl- essentially blaming Fred, right. And, and an entire generation, uh, along with him for the youths, man, the, the youths, man for not, uh, basically, you know, not providing room, not, not hitting the brakes when they need to. Uh, and it was just a very strange, yeah, it was just it was just like non factual. It was just it was, it it bore no relationship to what we could all see with our eyeballs, and so the sort of social media response, the the response from from all over the place, was just immediate. Like, what are you talking about? And I think this is probably compounded as well by the fact that Fred Wright is among the nicest people on Earth and does not appear to be the type of person who would barge into the back of another rider and make them fall down Peter Sagan-esque sort of thing. So the whole thing was just really weird.
3: There's a wonderful irony as well. I mean, wonderful's not the right word, but um, we all know that Primoz Roglic hasn't always been a cyclist. But Fred Wright, I believe, has. He's a product of the Hernhill Hill Velodrome and he's been cycling since he probably been cycling, possibly been cycling twice as long as Roglic has. Um, so this idea that he needs more time or he needs more and better handling as his p- career progresses <laughs> is slightly odd.
0: <laughs> yes.
3: Surely
2: there are yeah. more opinions out here.
3: <laughs> well, so the, I think it's important to point out that, yeah, there was a climb at the, it was a ramp onto a flat finish, wasn't it? So it was essentially a very small sprint. And the other riders in the group were Pascal Ackerman, Danny Van Poppel. Mads Pedersen and Fred Wright, all of whom have proved that they know what to do in a bunch sprint, and Roglic doesn't necessarily. If he's sprinting, he's sprinting from a very small group, usually of climbers, all of whom are as nervous and jumpy as he might be um, and as inexperienced in those argy-bargy situations, whereas the others know what they're doing. Um, so there's, there's a lot to, I don't know, it's, none of it makes Roglic look very good.
0: It's super weird. Cause yeah, there's, it's like three sprinters against Roglic and, um, he, he, he does, he didn't look good coming out of it. I think a lot of people who are like fans of his on the internet were kind of just like, who made you write this? Because <laughs> Roglic is, he's a super quiet guy. Like we don't really know much about him except Kate Wagner. She knows everything about him, but like uh, we, the common people, we don't know anything about him. And, For him to, like, be so direct is very uncharacteristic of Roglic, the Roglic that we know.
1: Having obviously never been in a, you know, sprint finish for a Grand Tour stage, I can't really comment on that exact situation, but on similar situations, if I put myself in that sort of scenario, where you've got, what was a four-person front group? You know, I know it all sort of broke up very close to the finish, you know, obviously, an extremely intense effort there, maybe a lack of oxygen going to the brain and that. But still, I I can almost guarantee the other three riders in that front group knew exactly what was happening. Everybody was on the right-hand side of the road. They were, without even looking around, they would be subconsciously aware of where the other riders are in the group and where the other riders are going to want to go to try and win that sprint. And it just seemed as if Roglic wasn't aware of either where Fred Wright was or where he would be going which were entirely obvious, you know. Obviously, sitting at home watching on TV, it's obvious. But you know, Fred Wright is going to want to come up the inside on the right hand side of the the road as as the riders are traveling to take you know the the best line possible to the finish, and that's exactly where Roglic moved into. Uh, and he should have at least you know you can't look behind you in that situation, but you can sense where the other riders are. And it seemed as if he had just no sense of where Fred Wright was going to be coming from, and and that. When I first seen it, I was like, well, that's what's caused the crash. And you could put any other any other combination of riders in there, whether they're former ski jumpers or former Madison riders is sort of irrelevant. If one moves in on top of the other in that situation, it's not going to end well. And that's why most often people who find themselves in that situation tend to not move in on top of the rider that's coming <laughs> up the inside of them. <laughs> it doesn't end well, you know, for neither rider, because Fred Wright potentially had a chance of winning that stage and that was taken from him when all his momentum was lost in the sprint.
3: Yeah, I mean, it it seemed like um, Roglic just didn't see him, didn't think he was there at all. And it's probably, for the sake of balance, uh, worth noting that they were sweeping into the middle slightly. Um, I think to avoid, uh, a spectator seemed to have dumped a bunch of uh, confetti by the barrier in their line of sight. And so they swerved slightly into the middle. So yeah, they were coming together a little bit, but again, you can't expect... That it's it's like somebody uh, captioned one of the photos with um, sprinting like you're on Zwift because um, you're coming into the line as if they were going to just be absorbed by one another, which doesn't happen.
0: But also, like I feel like the first mistake that Roglic made was coming off of the front in the first place because he's not going to win the stage in a group like this. For him, the most important thing is getting as much time as he possibly can, so... Would it not have been smarter for him to be leading the sprint out, which would have kind of removed him from this position altogether? Like he he wouldn't have gotten caught up in that's in in the other guys sprinting. So I feel like that that was his first mistake.
1: I don't know. He was riding in the farm. He could have won that sprint.
0: <laughs> Come on. <laughs> no one was gonna beat Mess. He's like Amazing. Uh, now, all, he was amazing. All joking aside, season.
1: that was sort of the, you know, obviously Roglic's injuries are pretty bad, but, you know, in terms of the spectacle, the worst thing to come out of that crash was just the fact that Roglic was then out of the race because he he was coming into great form. And we've seen a couple of stages before that he really was putting on in trouble. Um, who knows what would have happened going forward, but uh, I think that was the saddest thing as far as the race is concerned to come from. Christ the the whole statement and all afterwards was just weird that, it wasn't really sad that was just weird
3: yeah and on, and on the statement I I wonder just how much of it came from Roglic himself just you know just to play devil's advocate a bit more um I mean I like Roglic. I do think obviously he said those things so it came from somewhere and he believes he must have at one point at least believed what he said but I'm pretty sure that he had nothing to do with any of it getting online even on his own social media it was all the kind of you know how Instagram does now with the somebody, a, a page, putting it up with another page. And so somebody, he's got social media people, I'm sure. And so he has, I don't think he's had anything to do with the, besides the original quotes. Um, so you've got to imagine what Jumbo Visma were trying to get out of it.
2: Well, their they're press officer is a former journalist too. Uh, exactly. And, and that, that's why I, like, I thought it it read like this weird, like mini feature story about safety. <laughs> this was just a very god, I just a PR misstep. Uh and and just sort of made worse by the fact that it was so blatantly obvious that the facts that they were working under were sort of contrary to what the entire rest of the world had just watched just generally unfortunate. Uh Yumbos made some weird some other weird missteps this year too, so it's just uh, one of their one of their one of the areas they could, they could maybe uh work on for, for next year is not creating controversy where they don't really need to cuz that you know that's like the, this doesn't help doesn't help Roglic with fan base it doesn't help the team with the fan base it doesn't help Roglic win another grand tour someday like all it does the whole thing is just sort of sad and weird uh funny in some ways but mostly sad and weird because it's just you know like you said Ronan it's, it's that was bad for the race, was bad for the rider, ends up being bad for the team. It's just bad all around.
3: And it really sucked for Fred Wright. I mean, yeah. poor guy. I can't imagine. I mean, if I'd read that about myself, I would have never appeared at the start, I don't think.
2: Well, but, um, the, oh. but the good news is that the entire <laughs> world came to his defense. That's true. <laughs> so, yeah. so.
0: That's not true. He got, he got hate. He got hate on the internet and it's just mm. like, it's unnecessary.
2: Well, yeah. there, were,
0: yeah. there were Roglic fans out there who came after Fred Wright when he, he did nothing wrong.
1: It was great for Remco. <laughs> That's uh. true. <laughs> That's very
2: true. Should, yeah, should, but should, not for the Vuelta. Yeah. Should we use that as a segue to yeah. step yes. away from this particular topic, which has been beat to death, uh, and step into the guy that won the Vuelta a España? Now, Ronan, before we hit record, you said half on the record here that now is the moment we can now, we can now prop up Remco.
1: We can now, should we just say he's going to win next year's Tour de France? Is that what we should do at this point? I, I just wanted to, from this point forward, uh, I retract my pre-volta comments saying that we shouldn't be getting too hyped up by Remco. We should just let the guy go out and see what he can do. And now we need to go full on. <laughs> Remco is real, is unbeatable. Next Eddie Merckx, the next cannibal, is literally gonna eat cobbles for breakfast oh. and steaks for dinner <laughs> every night and will be unstoppable forevermore I mean. I agree. Okay. Or at least until he retires. <laughs> I agree.
2: Uh, let's let's talk about let's talk about sort of like let's put this this victory in context. And obviously, some of the context is the fact that his primary rival was forced out of the race within the last week, but it did look it looked like Remco was probably gonna be able to hang on anyway do you do you all agree with that
3: yeah his performance in these last few days were i mean he was not going to be dropped by anybody that said the uh the route did nobody else any favors it was uh, as we said before the the race began in the preview show it was made for him and he delivered um you know he he, he struggled on those on that middle weekend in the high mountains but he'd crashed two days earlier. And, his, and with every day that he got further away from his crash, he just seemed to get stronger and recover better. And he won and he win stage 18, um, which was so the same day that he left the race in the Giro, he won this time. So clearly he was not going to have any problem with sticking it out for the three weeks.
1: I don't, I don't want to get too carried away, but I could, you know, he, he seems to nail nailed on certain to, to win at least two more Vuelta's. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe even three <laughs> no the the point I'm trying to get to is just you know the hype in the Belgian media especially about Remco has been you know it, it's, it's been quite considerable over the last couple of years and now that he has you know in this season he has won what he won Algarve he won a couple of races he won liege Baston liege which is you know one of the monuments of our sport and now he's won a Grand Tour and it seems like you know, neither the team nor Remco nor any of us can really uh, dial it down for any longer. We need to just, you know, accept it, despite the age that he is now, and despite that this is the first Grand Tour that he's finished, and also the fact that you know Roglic wasn't there for the final week. He was up against Mass, you know, who finished second. Yeah, one Ayuso, who's like the youngest Grand Tour podium finisher in a hundred years, ninety-one. So- since 1904, yeah.
3: Uh, well. Oh, I thought it was a bit more recent than that, but oh no, that was the podium average age. Ignore me, carry on. Um, so
1: yeah, like it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, not only was it not the Tour de France, but it, it wasn't even the Giro of last year, the, the sort of level that this Vuelta was at. But still, he's won a grand tour now. We you, going forward, he, if he's starting a grand tour. We do know from this point on we'd have to consider him as a favorite, I think. Was the level at this Vuelta higher than we thought, though? I mean, I mean, think about all the big names that showed up
2: and did very little. Uh, I mean, Carapaz ended up with a bunch of stage wins but did basically nothing in the overall. You've got the winner of this Giro, uh, Jai Hindley, who didn't really do much. Uh, ma- maybe the level was higher than we we're actually giving it credit for.
3: Yeah, I mean, we lost um, uh, Yates and Sivakov, Um, but besides that, yeah, Carapaz is the only one you can, the only other one you can really think of as being a real contender and he was in the race, but he had a really bad first week. So yeah, it, it was maybe, yeah, it was a race for the podium by what stage six essentially. Um, but yeah, Evanapool was, I mean, yeah, there's a lot has been said about the fact that he was, he's been targeting this race whereas everybody else has come from the Giro, the Tour. Um, and this has been his primary goal, but probably since dropping out of the Giro last year. Um, so he was, yeah, I, I, didn't, I certainly didn't give him the credit that he deserved of coming into this race. Um, didn't factor in all those details. Um, and yeah, there were, what, 40 COVID dropouts by the end, but he would, it might, he would only have, that would only have put another two contenders in the mix probably.
1: And you know Yates arguably wasn't going for GC. It was seemed to be on a stage hunt uh, mission. If we just look at the team that was put in around him, seems like he was. You know,
3: he, yeah. he would have been in a Movistar situation where we would have had to finish in the top ten, though. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm convinced of that. He would have been aiming for a top five. So, now with this behind
2: us, can we say that Remco is going to be? Is he going to be on our list of, of you know, four, three, four, five-star favorites for the Tour de France next year? Not a one-star favorite. He's You know, those, not the, sorry, Roman Bardet. Uh, not the Roman Bardets of the group. Uh, is is he going to be, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, sorry, I'm sorry, Bardet. We like you a lot. Uh, is, is he going to be in that list for us next year? I mean, Patrick Lefevre has said You know, part of the reason why he's pretty keen to move Cavendish on is because next year is Remco's tour year. Is he a legit contender? Granted, we are so far away. But after watching that performance, what do we think?
3: I think we have to see what the tour route looks like. But this was not a high mountain test of a Vuelta. Um, And the tour will have many more high alpine passes that go much closer to 2,000 meters. I mean, the number of... Uh, I think there was maybe there were maybe two climbs that went over fifteen hundred meters at this volta. Um and most of the stages with mountains had little more than two, and they were all massed towards the end. Um, so, that, so it wasn't the most difficult route. Although to be fair to uh, Evanapool, again, the GC favourites group was buckled by the finish. Um, so, well, and maybe that's. Talking about the level again, but I think, yeah, the route is going to be a big factor. But I still, I still can't see him matching Pogacar at his best, given what we've seen Pogacar do on big mountains and with sustained efforts.
1: Just to completely contradict myself, I think we just need to take time and see with Ramco. <laughs> you know, he has won a monument, he's won a Welter, but going into a tour is a different story, and. It might seem strange to say it, given how much of just a, a wonder kid he has proven to be in over the last couple of seasons, turning pro in his first year in the elite category. But I, th- I think he is one of those riders who is going to develop at a slightly slower rate than the likes of Pogacha and even Vinigo to a certain extent. I know he's a bit older than both of those riders, but I think Remco over the next couple of years, he will more than likely, I would say, go to the tour next year, perhaps for GC tilt, perhaps for experience, but to put him down as a five star favorite, I'd, I, I couldn't, I couldn't go into the tour next year, and put him down as a four or five star favorite. But th- that's not to say I don't think he will be within a couple of years time.
0: I'm with Kit on this one. I feel like it completely depends on the route because if you throw in a bunch of high mountain passes, then I don't think he can compete with the one star favorites or the two star favorites even.
2: Mm. And we won't see the route for what another is it month or so? When's the tour route announced? Oh, Full October, route. October, sometime. Well, we can discuss again when we get there, right? Uh, I'm I'm kind of with all you. You know, for me, if 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 the tour was starting three weeks from now, I'd say he's a he's a two or three star favorite for me, right? Uh, because frankly, how do you look past Pogaccio and Vigigo At this point, but he's a he's a phenom, and He's a phenom who's been through a fair amount of hardship as well. And let's not forget his massive crash and like things to overcome. He's already overcome things. And so I think he's actually almost getting to where he is now slower than he would have otherwise. And that's worth keeping in mind, right? He's he's a guy who's been in headlines now for two or three years. But a lot of that was, was recovery time, you know, getting back into that Giro, finally getting a grand tour under his legs stuff like that. I think he's still probably better than we think he is, but there's a lot of very good, <laughs> there's a lot of very good grand tour riders right now is, is part of his problem.
3: Yeah. We have to remember that he didn't have to attack this last week. Um, he could, he probably could have attacked and take loads of, and taken loads of time. I kind of hoped he would, to be honest, um, just to give the final week a little bit of energy. Um, and I think he was the only one he could have done, but he didn't need to because he had uh, what, Approaching three minutes. Well, no, he had two minutes, didn't he, after the poorly the the off day? Um, but uh, yeah, I, he. Uh, I think he didn't need to go to a hundred percent, except when he was limiting his losses.
1: First Belgian Grand Tour win, forty-four years, worth mentioning.
0: Big deal. It's a big Pearl deal. Hmm.
1: Huge. Deal. It's it's actually kind of shocking I, that that's the case. I,
0: yeah. Ireland
2: has had a ground Tour one in that time. Two Tour ones in that time. <laughs> so is America, actually. Just not... Well, let's not talk about how many. Uh, ah. <laughs> 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 all right. Well, I'm excited about, about adding Remco to the mix. I think that, that above all is, is the big thing for me, is we've now, you know, we've got three... Depending on where Egan Bernal is at the moment possibly four of these wonder children uh and and it's excited to it's it's, it's it's yeah it's really cool to see what
1: they are going to be able to do in the next couple of years i am genuinely excited about that the bigger question for me coming out of the G, the Vuelta podium is just what enrique Maas is going to do next having finished three times second in the vuelta you know he's
0: fourth times a charm <laughs>
1: wasn't for Roglic. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs>
1: rough. Um, yeah, just, you know, and movie star in general just didn't have a great Walter. Valverde, who, you know, had come out, you know, a defiant. Basically, he was going to save the team from relegation. It was Saturday, I think I realized, before he was in the race. And that was because he <laughs> happened to find himself in a break. He, he still somehow managed to finish, like, he finished higher on GC, I think, than he finished on any stage throughout the race uh which which is an achievement in itself uh, th- just, uh that, th- those facts may not be 100% accurate <laughs> but they're very close <laughs> to being accurate <laughs> but yeah it just uh, wasn't the best falta ever for the top spanish squad what about juan ayuso yeah
3: yeah i mean what is he 19 yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's that's uh, a winner trouble is though he's on the same team as Pogacha, so we're not going to get to see him race with the others although to be fair he yeah, I don't know. I mean, he he was racing against himself uh and groveling on a lot of stages. But yeah, it's a remarkable achievement. When I mean, you look at everyone who's behind him, there are some amazing riders that we've seen we've had around for years and years and years. And, and he's 19. Sickening. It's like, a whole whole
2: different <laughs> level of of ridiculous, even compared to to like at least at least Pogacar had the had the uh <laughs> I don't know the grace to wait the, a few yeah, years. The gra- he, yeah, the grace to at least like get a two at the beginning of his age before <laughs> before yeah. he 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 took this thing on. I mean, so nineteen years old. He he is the he is the youngest Grand Tour podium finisher since nineteen oh four when Henri Cornet won the Cornet. I should say he's French. Cornet won the Tour de France. Uh, that's a that's a fair ways yeah. and, that, and that's a significant stat. I think in that. I think it's very clear that Ayuso is going to be a massive name in the next couple of years. Now, like you said, he's, he's on the same team as Tadej Pogacar. That, that doesn't necessarily, to me, mean that he's not going to you know, make a run at the Giro next year. I don't think he's probably going to win a Grand Tour in the next 12 months, but man, he's, he's a, certainly a, a super exciting talent.
1: His five-year contract with UE, if I remember right,
2: also yeah, he's, so he's, yeah, he's got the longest 20, contract,
3: or something like that. Yeah. yeah,
0: they're really good at picking up these young guys and being like, "Hey, you, you're the money." Future. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, <laughs> think, yeah, I wonder
1: uh, at what point do we get to like the minimum age possible of, of being on the podium of a Grand Tour? With the way things are going, someone could finish on the Giro podium on the same day that they turn nineteen. <laughs> 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 I think. I think beyond that would be. Imp- Almost, well, you could, yeah, it could be the same year as you turn nineteen because you know beyond that you're a junior. And I mean, yeah, at the you could race the Giro as a junior though, couldn't you? Like if if you if you signed with a pro team,
2: I think you could. I don't think no, there's, there's a there rule rules. against it.
1: I'm pretty sure there will be a rule against it, but there are ten year olds racing the Tour of Britain year in year out, so uh, anything is possible.
3: <laughs> <What>? <laughs> How old was Andrew Ponema when he did the Giro first time? Because he was really young, I've, he was definitely eighteen. If he wasn't younger, sorry, mm. talk amongst yourselves. while I find this stat?
2: <laughs> I I still I don't know if there's any age limit rule for like world tour teams. Yeah, he was I, eighteen. So carry on. I don't. I would have to go check. I would have to read through the horrible rule book. But I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure it's just no one's bothered because like that's insane to to take like a 17 year old and 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 put them in a Grand Tour, but you know we're going to end up with, like a gymnastic situation where they put like a no minimum, no. minimum age on it.
1: <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that there there is a rule against it, but you potentially can decide to like upgrade yourself after which point you cannot go back and ride a junior race, right? But I don't I don't think you could upgrade yourself into the professional ranks.
2: I mean, they, yeah. but they, they they do have this the U twenty three. This is U23s, not a rule we've right? ever
1: had to check. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow.
2: We'll we'll go we'll go check the rule and we'll report back uh, next week. But yeah, I mean, like that's how it is in the U 23s right? Once you sort of upgrade yourself, you're sort of not really. It's frowned Maybe. upon, and I think in some cases you're not allowed to go back down to U twenty three ranks. Like you can't go race the Tour de France, and then turn around and race the Tour de L'Avenir.
1: Uh. Think. You, well, you can certainly ride the under twenty three world championships, um, but well, that gets us into a whole different discussion about the relevancy of the under yeah, twenty three category now. Rumor Ro- Ro- has it they're changing it to the under threes category because <laughs> <forward laughs> well, riders 35. are so young.
2: <laughs> should have a grey jersey. We need, yeah, we need a mm-hmm. masters thirty five plus uh, at all the grand tours. I think that would really add a whole new element.
0: Oh, Valverde would be like last race? Nah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. But then Van Vluten would sweep up all the jerseys still. Um, 35 is not that old, I will say. Yeah. <laughs> it feels old with the podium at the Vuelta though I was working out yesterday speaking of Valverde if you add together Ayuso and Evanpool's Even- age you get 41 and Valverde is 42 which oh. just seems oh. horrible to me oh. <laughs>
0: and he still finished 13th overall
3: he did Point. and he got 84 UCI points oh, if only wow. Ayuso
1: had been if only Auso had been second we could have said if you put first and second together you get well sorry get thirteen. Oh. Oh, all right
2: it was a good Vuelta there were yeah. moments there were moments where I was like ah Vuelta but in the end sometimes the day to day it was it was a type two fun Vuelta don't you think hey like, like you get Rigo to the Brito end Rio
0: or Ron won a stage yeah he did that was good you get that to the was end, a great moment you get
2: to the end you're like that was great that was worthwhile I enjoyed that whereas I think in the podcast middle of it, was like,
1: the best part hey. of the Vuelta <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm certainly enjoying talking about the Vuelta much more than I was expecting to. I have to say, I don't think that was a very good Vuelta. Just to, as mm-hmm. as there is a balance, because I was worried there wasn't going to be, given my feelings about it. But I feel like, because there were so many repeat stages where you had exactly the same thing happening over and over again. And that just is goes to show that, I mean, yeah, it happens in a lot of grand tours. you have got repeat offenders winning stages, but... Carapaz won in the same way each day. Jay Vine, brilliant, fantastic to see Jay Vine winning two stages, but won in the same way. Mads Pedersen, uh, I mean, th- there's, there's a great quote from him from the team bus where he knew he was going to win and nobody could come close to him. And that's great, but it it was inevitable to everybody. Um, and I, I don't know, I just felt like, okay, so Carapaz is going to win another stage? It's, it was just the over and over and over, and it just felt like, somebody had been pressing the repeat button on some, on something. I don't know. Is It's part, is part of that a
2: function. It's part of that a function of, um, kind of what we were talking about earlier, where, where this is, this is the end of a long season for a lot of these riders. And a lot of them were not focusing on this race specifically. And so mm-hmm. you probably had sort of a, a core group that for one, one reason or another found form in these three weeks. And they were just significantly better than the entire rest of the Peloton. Right. I mean, that's that's one of the things about the Tour de France that all the pros say is that the part of the reason it's so hard is that you have 180 riders who are all absolutely at peak form, right? And so that's why you know winning multiple stages of the Tour de France is even more impressive. But if you've got a, a Vuelta where one 40 riders are gone from COVID, two, a lot of riders are at the end of a long season, or are just sort of like trying to trying to just get through this thing, I guess it's not as surprising that you end up with half a dozen riders all actually less than that all taking mm-hmm. multiple stages because they, they just had the form when a lot of the, the field didn't.
3: Yeah. I just didn't feel like the redemption race that the Vuelta so often is, but that's maybe that's just me.
0: If if you look at like Jay vine, for example, he didn't race for all of July. Like he had a huge block to recover after he didn't start stage four of tour de Swiss. And, so, like, he would have been a rider who came into the race on like top form. I think Carapaz as well probably came in on really good form, seeing as it was his last his last Grand Tour with Ineos before he moves on to EF Education Easy Post next year. And Mess, like, I mean, the tour wasn't entirely disappointing for Mess, but it he didn't get what he wanted, which was yellow in Denmark. Mm.
2: And he's not going to Worlds, which I think is unfortunate. He's not going to Worlds. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it, the course was on the edge of too hard for him, I think, in Australia. But I still it, he was climbing so well at the Vuelta. That it would have been really interesting to just see him at least give it a go. Uh, I mean, because Harrogate was hard too, and he won that race. So anyway, last Vuelta thing. We have to, ra- we have to rate the Vuelta. What are we going to rate it oh. in? What cliched Spanish item... Can we use to rate the vuelta? Sangria,
0: <laughs> paella, <laughs> Patatas? oranges, oranges.
3: <laughs> I'm looking
2: at you, Abby, who like lives cava. in Spain. <laughs>
3: there
2: we go. We'll rate it in cava. So how many? How many cava's out of five, Kit?
3: I don't know how brutal I'm gonna. I want to be.
2: Be, just honest. be honest, be hundred yeah. percent honest. That's, well, okay. what, so that's what our listenership demands.
3: I, yeah. Honestly, I'm going to stick with what I was thinking towards the end of last week. I'm going to give it one. One. Yeah. Ooh. I look, I've been following cycling for 10 years solidly now, uh, following it closely. And this was the least interested I've been in a grand tour. <laughs> <laughs> Brutal. It's just the state. I just didn't find it exciting. After the first week, I just didn't find it exciting. Abby, I'm
0: gonna I'm gonna agree one kava, but I think that that is because I am exhausted.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, she says with a tiny baby sitting behind her on the floor.
0: God damn it! She <laughs> just keeps rolling onto her stomach, and then she can't roll back, so she gets like really upset. Mm. Um, No, I mean, it's been like, (laughs) it's been a really, really long season. And I I think especially like, we'll, we'll talk about the women's race in a second, but for the, for anyone covering women's racing, like we're used to having blocks of not having racing and this year was not that. And so I feel like we've, I've come to this point in the season. I'm just like, wait, the Vuelta is still going on. Hasn't been going on for months or like... Or I've just for completely forgotten that it exists, <laughs> so I feel like one Kava.
1: Ronan, um, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to give it one because you know there were some. It, we we just made a great podcast about the Guelta. <laughs> so the, there was obviously some talking points, some interesting aspects to it. I didn't give it zero.
3: You didn't. Give it. <laughs>
1: uh, but you know when you when you actually look at it, I think it was like what five riders won way more than half of the stages uh and it just did have this air of predictability about it which never makes for all that exciting racing and you know give racing fatigue or not it just really did not hook me in this year even the team time trial didn't really oh, capture oh my, my. What? yeah so <laughs> wow you know, Ronan, for that reason, I I won't give it a one, but I'll give it a one point two
2: five. Oh, amazing. <laughs> if, if, it, if if even a team time trial cannot pull in Ronan, I feel like that might be a you problem, not a race problem, Ronan. I,
1: I, no, it, it definitely, it definitely. is. I I feel bad about rating it because I just you know I, when I knew I was going to be on the podcast, I paid a lot of attention to try and have some sort of a, opinions. But beyond <laughs> that, if if I didn't have to do it for work, I probably wouldn't have watched so much. <laughs> Is all I will say. Uh, yeah, but but it is like we you know we spent so much time on the road for Tour de France, Eurobike, all that. The the cycling world in general is fatigued with spending hours watching you know bike races on TV. By the time we get out of Tour de France, it's it it may be a me problem. It may be a problem that a lot of us have, but <laughs> it's also a Valtè problem. Yeah, and um, that.
0: I've- I wonder if that's like, because at 2020, we had the condensed calendar, right? Where like everything was jam packed, but it was super exciting because we didn't have any bike racing at all, all summer. And then all of a sudden we had like a ton in like a three month block or whatever. And then 2021, there was still a bunch of races that were canceled. So it was still, it was spread out, but it was still like a very thin calendar. And so it, with those two years kind of being what we we're used to. And then to come into this year where every race is back on and there's literally a race every single, I mean, I just looked at GCN today. Cause I was like, Oh, I wonder if there's any bike races and there's a bike race tomorrow. There's like the tour of Luxembourg tomorrow, like there's so much bike racing. And I wonder if it just feels like that because of the two years we've had.
2: Yeah. And cause the pro cycling's calendar is completely insane as well. Uh, <laughs> okay, we're not getting into that debate though. That's <laughs> <we're> <laughs> it's gonna, gonna take us down like we, it. we've discussed that at length. Uh I'm gonna give it two. I'm gonna give it two kavas. And and my rationale is that as part of our jobs, we like a bit of controversy. It's good for us. And uh and the and the the final week delivered <laughs> on that front. We had some weird Roglic stuff. Uh we had remco's mini flat. We had some other interesting things. I was talking about this with Johnny actually. There were no days like that at Tour de France this year and like there was no weird side story controversy weirdness like so at for all. the
3: handshake which you hated
2: that's true that's true
3: but that, but even that like that, that,
2: was, <laughs> ah, that was that was that it was, was innocuous it was yeah, pretty yeah. It innocuous, was innocuous. It was, and it was it was a very strange Tour de France in that perspective because normally the Tour de France is sort of the the microscope under which that race exists means that any small thing, handshake, for example, gets just blown way out of proportion, probably mostly by the press like us. But that, that never happened this tour. And as somebody who just likes weird side stories, I was a little bit disappointed by that. So even though... The actual racing at this Vuelta was, yeah, relatively predictable. I won. I really like the fact that we got a new Grand Tour winner. I always like a new Grand Tour winner because I think it adds to the narrative of the entire next season, right? And it, frankly, the next couple of years. The fact that Remco won this Vuelta should make next season's racing better, I think. And the other reason is because we had a little bit of controversy last week, which I always just find entertaining. So yeah, to
3: two. that point, Evanapool is the third fresh-faced, first-time Grand Tour winner of the year. And it's actually not that unusual. The last time that happened was in 2019. But still, it means that we've got three contenders, three more contenders that we didn't maybe have before or not in the same way.
2: Yeah. And and for some, well, not for some reason. I mean, genuinely, I think that, yes, we love Jai Hindley and we think that he can do amazing things, but we're probably not as excited about him being a world-beater as we are potentially Remco. So I feel like this victory actually is sort of more significant
1: long-term than, than Jai's was. I think, I think I've think i just figured out the Vuelta's problem, and not to dawn on this for too long, but just what you've mentioned there now triggered in my mind. If we, okay, Remco, Venipol aside, granted he is highly exciting, but I'm just going to read through the top 10, and you stop me when I get to the next most exciting writer for you. Mm. So... Remco first, we all agreed, yes. And then Roglic likely would have been first or second, also pretty exciting. But then Enric Mas, I mean, I think back to going into the world, I mean, not right now, but Enric Mas, Juan Ioso, Miguel Angel Lopez, Yao Almeida, Timon Arnsman, Carlos Rodriguez, Ben O'Connor,
2: Woo!
1: Rigoberto Ruan. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> right down to eighth place before anybody stopped me there. Yeah, you know, and that maybe is And Rigo
2: in we
3: ninth
0: is so... pretty
2: great.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah, but he's not gonna win a grand
0: tour, is he? No. Never say never. No. But T Balpino
2: in seventeenth. Uh he wasn't even trying to win it, so David de la Cruz in, in the Maya Sabla. Uh, there's no Maya Sabla at the at the Vuelta, unfortunately. But uh he would have won it if there was one. Okay, let's move on from the Vuelta. I think our average score is like a 1.3 <laughs> kavas or something like that. I was gonna move to the Saratizit challenge, but Abby seems slightly preoccupied. No, you, you got it. Okay.
0: Let's do it. Okay. We can do it.
2: Uh, I just have
0: my assistant here to uh, make sure that I
2: let's move on to the Saratizit challenge. Abby, was it was it, it it was somewhat underwhelming, was it not?
0: It, yeah, much like the men's race, it was a little bit underwhelming, which I think had to do with the way that they structured the stages. The general classification was really front-loaded with the team time trial. And then stage two was a mountain stage, not high mountains, but just continuous uh, cat two, cat cat twos and cat, there was a cat one. So it was just climbing, climbing, climbing. So um, in terms of the overall race, Annamie Van Vluten won it handedly on stage two she rode away and got almost two minutes. Um she solo, got in some trouble, so, didn't
2: she? For for being mean beforehand. What? Didn't she get in some, some trouble for a quote about like, oh this is too easy or something like that.
0: Oh come on. She says that all the time. Like I think she she said uh she, she said that about that. like every single race in the the classic season she was like oh yeah they're not hard enough for me to win. Um so that's a thing that she just says Um, but I mean, in theory, yeah, if you looked at the, the route for this race, you you wouldn't expect her to be able to, you wouldn't expect her to win in the way that she did. Like she won the Giro and the tour with solo long solo attacks. Um, but she did, she just kind of rode away from Demi Vollering on stage two and rode in solo. And then, uh, Demi Elisa Borghini and Leanna Lippert were the next group on the road. So those three really contested the next two spots on the podium in terms of the overall, but then there was a couple really exciting stages. Uh, like stage three was super exciting. One by Grace Brown stage four was also really exciting. That was Sylvia Persico took that win. It's her first world tour win. And, um, she's, she was one of the main, Uh, really exciting new riders, new young riders, um, to come out of the the tour de France. So that was a super exciting stage. And then the final stage was won by Elisa Balsamo, which it was her last road race in the world championship Jersey, world champion Jersey, um, which she's had quite the year. So overall, I would say the race was really good, but the general classification, much like the general classification of the Giro and the tour um, was the Anamique Van Vluten show, which is like, hey, that's if you are a fan of Anamique, we've been through it before. If you're a fan of Anamique, it was super exciting. If you want to see more of a fight, then it left something to be desired. But um I think yeah, it's it's incredible that she was able to win all three like quote grand tours of the year. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
2: not an unsurprising result. Uh, let's be honest. Uh, even though she did say that it wasn't hard enough for her to win beforehand, then she went and won solo anyway.
0: (laughs) It is, it does get kind of tiring after a little while, the, the solo winning and yeah, I don't know. It, it makes it look like there's, there's no competition within the women's Peloton and maybe there isn't, but, but there, there will be. You know, there's like a lot of riders fighting for second. I don't know how to, I don't know how to like, I, I can't spin. I'm sorry. I'm trying to like spin it positively because like, I know people really love Annemiek and I, and she's a great person. Like I have nothing, but in terms of exciting racing, you know.
3: Well, she's probably bringing the level up of everybody else and they're all absolutely got to aspire to. And like you say, once she retires, it's going to be hot and you know, with, with everyone who's left. Um, And there'll be other new riders that we haven't met yet. Um, So yeah, I think the, I think although we've got some fairly predictable outcomes to come in the next 12 months, so long as she doesn't have another catastrophic crash, um, then we're going to have some really exciting racing from 2024.
0: It's, it's hard to see anyone ever being able to compete with on to be honest. Like, I feel like this is like a, we got one more year of this. Let's like ride it out. And 2024 is going to be great because I just, (laughs) she's like such a phenom. It's just, I feel like it's not possible for somebody to be on her level. Ronan doesn't look... I don't know what facial expression Ronan is making.
3: I think Ronan didn't watch the Vuelta, so it is a challenge. <laughs>
0: I've,
3: I've been
1: fine, though.
0: That's fine. It was, like, ridiculously late at night, if you are in Europe.
2: <laughs> well, last on our list today, we had the the set of Grand Prix Montreal and Quebec over the weekend. I really like these races, not least because they are in North America, uh, which I mentioned on last week's show, there's that other race that just sort of kicked off in Maryland. Um, having that sort of string of three races is is pretty cool here in North America. And the fact that they're all sort of close together timing wise and not that far off geographically means that, well, we get really good start lists for all these. Plus, with Worlds around the corner, they they tend to provide a pretty good... In bit of insight into who's on form ahead of the World Championships because the World Championships kicks off this weekend. Uh, I think the the elite time trials are on Sunday, if I remember correctly. Um, And actually, you know, much of our much of our Australian team and myself are headed to Australia. Well, they're already in Australia. I'm headed to Australia (laughs) next week for the world. So what did we learn from? the weekends canadian races
0: hopefully Wow van Aert learned something um.
2: don't get don't come to a don't come to a finish line with five riders is what he learned cuz he's never won a sprint out of a five rider group
0: is that a, is that a true statistic
3: that's an actual stat but well, in the last he's yeah the last couple of races he's done we, the big you know since the tour he's come second well yeah he's come second to somebody who maybe underestimated, so I, I mean, yeah, was he beaten by his own overconfidence yesterday? I think, I mean, he did quite a lot of work in that group because he was obviously a marksman in the because it was from a late breakaway that that, that really strong group. But yeah, uh, I mean, he was beaten by Marco Halla, um, and then by Tadej Pogacar. So, and that's since the Tour de France. I mean, there are mitigating circumstances, but you know, it's he's going to be looking himself in the mirror and thinking, ah.
1: <laughs> Didn't we mention this when he lost to Haller that there is some crazy statistic about how often he doesn't win a small group sprint like that that he is expected to? Maybe. Uh, but the thing that I learned from the races was that Kozniewicz is oh, a firm yeah. favourite for the World Championships based he really, on that performance. Yeah, yeah,
0: he rode super well, but. I mean, both races, I feel like the, these races are usually not a, the world's preview races, but because the races, the worlds is in Australia, obviously a lot of people went over to race the one days in Canada and are flying straight from Canada to the world championships. Um, but I feel like Pogacar is my pick for Worlds because he he lost the Tour de France, obviously, a huge blow for him. And I think he lost the Tour de France and he woke up the next day and was like, well, fine, I'm going to win the World Championships then. And he really rode incredibly well in Montreal. If if his plan is to be World Champion, then he's looking really good for it. Uh,
3: but unfortunately for us all, Cosmify is not likely well, I mean, if he's not, if they haven't confirmed he's going now, he's not going to be at the worlds. They said after he won on Friday, he's not going to the World Championships. Why? Oh, a
0: sad day. Because he's tired.
3: Oh
1: well, that's really just one tired? of his best performances <laughs> ever. Because he's yeah. just so tired.
3: <laughs> he said, "Yeah, they, I mean,
1: I mean, he must have went deep for that one." Can I just say,
2: European bike races are soft as heck when it comes to travel. Jesus Christ, like. <laughs> American I mean this is
0: where all the races are
2: yeah but like they're like oh I can't drive there it's too far I can't I could never do this I mean even Wout was complaining about flying on Twitter over the weekend he he was wow. Well, he was complaining about he the price he was complaining about flying in business class yeah he was complaining about the he price really of in. business class they're like wow, you make a couple million dollars a year I think you're gonna be fine buddy
0: that was a really that was that tweet was really out of touch it
2: was just mm-hmm. bad yeah that was just bad. All, all of this just rem- Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just I was just I was just gonna complain more about uh like for example, when we have world championship cyclocross races here in the United States and all the Europeans are like, oh no, we could never possibly fly and then also recover and then also you know race bikes whereas literally everybody in Australia and anywhere in North America and South America is all like what are you talking about we do this all the time we spend most of the season thousands and thousands of miles away from our families and have to fly to all these races and the Europeans just need to to buck up here and go to
1: Australia and go to the World Championships. <laughs> Based on the two examples you've just given, um, I think you're tarring all Europeans with the with the Belgian brush.
2: Yeah, it's actually uh, true. <laughs> <laughs>
1: having, having lived in Belgium and you know flown in an airplane to get to Belgium and lived in a foreign country, not in my own house with other guys. And listen to the Belgians having to complain about driving an hour to get to a race. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, th- I think it might be more of a Belgian thing than a European thing. Well, but it
2: sounds like sounds like the French are 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 equally culpable here. Anyway, my my small mini rant there. Uh, I am excited for the worlds. I think I think I agree with Abby that Pogacha really 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 wants some rainbow bands, which is fully understandable. And the course is. I mean, it's not a mirror of of the Quebec or Montreal courses uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but it is in this sort of same general area, kind of puncher, kind of kind of area. It has, I think, the course has one long climb in it, like an eight k climb, but it's quite gradual, and so uh, sort of not expected to to blow things up in the way that. Uh, well, some of the real mountainous world's courses in recent years have done. So yeah, it's not necessarily a perfect one for Pagaccia. It's not necessarily a perfect one for for almost anybody. Uh, but I think that you know, every, riders like like Pagaccio, riders like Al Philippe, riders like Waffenert, they all have an ability to win on this course, depending on how it's raced and, and exactly sort of what the finale looks like. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a good bike race. With that. We're going to wrap up here. Uh, we will have next week's episode will be a little bit late. We'll be recording it from the ground in. I was I was yelled at for my pronunciation of Wollongong, which I think I've still pronounced incorrectly because I won't put an Australian accent on. But our 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 podcast editor, who is Australian, said it's like Wollongong, woolen, woolen basically Wollongong. We'll go with that. Anyway, we'll Wait, be on
0: Mal yelled at you for something.
2: Mal didn't yell at me. He texted me kindly about my, okay. my pronunciation. I was say. <laughs> uh, you must
0: have really pronounced it wrong. Then I
2: mean, I probably did. Uh, anyway, we're all a whole bunch of us are going to be there myself. Uh, Matt, Denise, Ian, Trelor, Dave Rome. We're all going to be on the ground and we'll be creating an episode next week. Uh, I think it's going to be on Wednesday local time. So that'll be Tuesday, Europe and North America time. Um, And then we're going to be doing some live shows on Friday night, Saturday night, about an hour after the the race is finished. I think it's 6 p.m. is the plan. Don't quote me on that. Anyway, Friday night, Saturday night, uh, we will have information about those live shows going out to members and everybody else uh, later this week. So if you're going to be at Worlds, swing by, say hi. Uh, I don't know. I'll have stickers. I'll
1: give you a sticker. I thought I'd wait till the end of the show to tell you, Katie, okay, I'm not speaking to you. Oh, really? Because you're not sending me to the world <laughs> in Australia. So, <clears throat> wouldn't have worked if I'd said this at the start, but from this point forward, yeah, we're no longer speaking. Oh, that's unfortunate. Well, we'll just, we'll just, can we communicate via Slack at least? Mm, probably have to for work. Okay. But, yeah, all the, all the
2: <laughs> I apologize. I wish we could all go. It's going to be a party. It's going to be great. All right. Thanks for listening this week, everybody. We hope you enjoyed, and we'll be back next week from the land of Oz. Bye-bye.